Today we return to the topic of the recent spate of sports documentaries and connect it to the issue of binge-watching. All this and a lot more today on... The following program is brought to you in living color. As early as 1923, David Sarnoff recognized the possibility of developing a television system. This is the dimension of imagination. Oh yeah! Now I remember! It's Inside the Box... The TV History Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Jonathan Bollinger. I just want to begin by saying how great it's been to see both old and new listeners alike coming in and downloading the podcast. We also appreciate those of you who have donated to the Patreon and have been both listening to the archive and those new Patreon-only bonus episodes. Again, I realize that many of you are hoping to hear all three of us together in the same room during these episodes, but timing and more generally life, quote unquote, hasn't really been wanting to cooperate in order to do that. So instead, I hope you've enjoyed the guests I've been speaking with and feel in at least in a way that they're helping to fill in that space or void of uh, Andrew and Steve. You may have also noticed that today's episode is a little bit longer than most of the new episodes. Honestly, it's about the average length of what we used to do in the older episodes, but with this new season, we've been trying to keep those episodes closer to quote-unquote bite-sized portions. The reason we went a little long today? Well, just simply because my guest, Dr. Emil Steiner, and I, we kind of got on a roll and we didn't really want to stop stop short. You know, we were having too much of a good time. So, Emil is a faculty member at Rowan University down in South Jersey, and prior to joining the Academy, wrote and edited at the Washington Post. His work focuses on sports, and I talk with him about one of his sub-interests, binge-watching, and how that can intersect with sports programming, and in particular, sports documentary. Of course, as I mentioned, we go a little long, so you know I asked him questions about sports and history, and sports and collective memory. I think you'll get a kick out of it. Also, for the sake of transparency, I'll also just say that back when Dr. Steiner was a grad student, his advisor was scholar Dr. Carolyn Kitsch, who's at Temple. And honestly, her work I really, really dig, particularly her work on magazines and memory. So that's sort of another tangential connection. So without further ado, let's just get right into our conversation. Look. Winning has a price. They have got to be the number one sports team in the world. No matter what we did, it seemed like it was a story. The most famous man on the planet is here. Michael Jordan changed the culture in Chicago. My mentality was to go out and win at any cost. Competition was an addiction. Nobody will ever work as hard, and he never freaking turned it off. The only question, how long can it last? I just felt like it was... Thank you again for uh, joining us today here on Inside the Box. Jonathan, thanks for uh, having me uh, on your podcast. And what I wanted to start out with for this episode is really the idea that there seems to be a rise in sports documentaries available on both traditional network and streaming services. And just to kind of get our, our toes in the water, I want to sort of put that question to you, which is, 
is this sort of a false realization or have you noticed this as well? Does there seem like there's more sort of documentary content with sports available to us in the last few years? Um, I, I don't think that your perception is wrong, that there's been an increase in, in sports documentaries uh, over the last uh, few years. I, I think that it has been particularly driven, if you look just at the last year, by uh, you know the pandemic when there really wasn't any live sports for a number of months. So uh, you know, in speaking to people at ESPN, you know, who who produces, they had you know no content to put on, so <laughs> they they had to go in and see what documentaries they had. Some documentaries they pushed forward uh, that they may have been holding off until later. Uh, the Michael Jordan documentary, for instance, you know, others are just like we need content. We need to put something on to uh, to keep uh, to keep your viewers, uh, you know, watching. And you know, I, I think a, a big part of of the appeal of sports document of sports documentaries is the nostalgia that that uh, kind of comes along with that and. During the pandemic, particularly, there was a real, real sort of yearning for that. You know, I in the in the people that I've interviewed about, you know, what kind of stuff they were watching during the pandemic. There was uh, a lot of looking back at older, whether it's actually just older sports matches, like old Super Bowls, things that they may have missed that they had wanted to watch, uh, and also uh, sports documentaries. There was a desire to be transported, uh, you know, back and. To either catch up or to relive or to re-experience or to learn more about sports, you know, driven probably because there wasn't any new sports available. But also, I think the pandemic created a situation where we, you know, needed to, to, to get away, even though we were stuck in our homes and unable to literally get away. And so we, uh, a lot of people use sports documentaries for that transportation. And I, and I think, I think you bring up a really good point there because, and this is an audio podcast, so the listeners don't don't see you, of course. But you are a relatively young guy, or at least younger than I am. Um, and what always gets me, what always gets me, is that I think it's unquestionable that nostalgia is a part of sports fandom for sure. But there's also, to an extent, a younger fan base for these sports. And honestly, I don't think a lot of the younger demographic is necessarily interested in this nostalgia. But I think you bring up the, the key point there, as you said, to either remember or reminisce or to learn about. And so I think even if it's in a sort of deconstructed, nonlinear sort of network or social media way of, oh, suddenly this piece of information is presented to me. I don't know what this was. Let's, you know, do a Wikipedia search. Let's learn about this. I think these documentary or, or a Netflix documentary, because I think, and I think you and I, I can speak to this uh, to you as well as my own experience. I think that's how most of your undergraduates, if they're like mine, learn about anything these days, which is Netflix documentaries and one, or at least you know YouTube or maybe even TikTok, um, for sure. So I think I think that is the link for the younger the younger demographic, and I think with sports, there's also a comfort food level in almost any sport, right? Because there tends to be a um, sort of a family connect, a family component to this, right? It could be a mom Absolutely. and a son, a mom and a daughter, a dad and a son. And before we get into your own research, I, I'm wondering how did you sort of, where did sports come into your life? And, and you've worked both professionally, you know, in, in a journalistic setting, you know, I believe you used to do some NFL stuff for the Washington Post along with a lot of other things. You know, how did sports become such a big part of your your sort of private sector life and now your your sort of academic life? Well, um, so I mean, 
Yeah, you've asked a lot. Though. Well, first of all, I, I should say, just for the record, I, I'm a 42 years old, so oh. I, I, I don't know if I can now call I, myself quite so young anymore. But now I, now I, I feel worse because he, he does not. He, he looks much better than that, folks. <laughs> oh, I appreciate. It. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, you know, so I, I think you asked a lot of really interesting things there. I think that um, to some extent, yes, you know, I, I, so I work at Rowan University and I, you know, I work, I teach sports journalism. I work with students, you know, 18, you know, they're mostly like 18 to 22. They're mostly undergraduates. So, you know, they all have, you know, pretty much grown up in the 21st century. And so, yeah, they, they, you know, they watch, uh, you know, the 30 for thirties or the sports documentaries out there. And largely they're watching content that is it, sort of impossible for them to be nostalgic for because they were not alive when the uh, sports events in question took place largely. So yeah, you know, th for them, it's, it, it's, it can be informational. Uh, you know, it can be, you know, it can be a time for them to get the context of the sort of uh, history of sports that is often referenced. Uh, you know, my students are very eager learners to, to, to learn that past. They see it as, uh, on a professional level, as part of how their training needs to be so that they can, you know, go on the air or write about or analyze uh, sports and have the history and sort of reference points in order to make sense of uh, of sports because sports is is built on records and history and and it's constantly being referenced like people who are are into sports and writing about sports don't even realize how often they might just be dropping references that if you talk to somebody who is either not from the country or not familiar with sports they're kind of like it's it's not quite a different language but they're like wait what does that word mean what ice bowl what like Heidi game like wh where wh who you know miracle on what like right. you know <laughs> um so you know it's almost you know these are it's jar or, uh, you know, the, the history is just a part of the language. And so, yeah, for a lot of them, you know, it is this opportunity for them to, to gain that knowledge so that they can be better, um, you know, both consumers and creators of sports media. Um, I think for, uh, you know, people in, in more in my generation, there's also, you know, that element of learning, but a large part of it is, is also driven by nostalgia. But I don't think you can look beyond the nostalgia also for those people who haven't experienced it too, because, and I think you kind of hinted on this when you were asking me, you know, why did I, you know, sort of choose a career and, you know, first as a, as a sports reporter and sports editor, and now as a, as a professor teaching sports um, and, and studying how people watch it. And I think that there's that, that feeling, that youthful feeling, and you alluded to it again, you know, I mean, that's what sports kind of does. It allows us to, to relive uh, youth in, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, the, and, and that's because of, that's a lot of, that's when most people fall in love with sports in, in the sort of pure sense. You know, it's, it's like the first time, it's similar to the first time you experience, you know, music that you're passionate about. Uh, or film or other culture, you know, those feelings of first love are foundational, you know, and they set the standards by which we evaluate our passions. Uh, and, you know, those memories are strong, or, at least, you know, at least we believe that they are strong, and they're often visceral, uh, and they're perceived as unadulterated by the politics and economic realities uh, that, you know, grow apparent with maturity when we see really what's going on in and around sports. You know, and I think as a result, they're they're sort of regarded uncritically. And even though we know we know now, you know, as you become older, you know about the social inequalities, the the often unsubtle racism, sexism, homophobia of that time. 
And even when we see those things in the rewatching of the coverage and the commercials of the, you know, the 20th century, in my case, uh, you know, as a kid in the 80s, you know, those feelings, uh, they can be so strong and our innocence so ignorant uh, that we can kind of excuse it, at least for a little bit of time, you know, those feelings at least we excuse, you know, similar to the way we might excuse, uh, you know, an older family member who speaks inappropriately because, you know, <laughs> quote, they came from a different time. Uh, and, you know, I, I think like underlying that, that sort of mnemonic disregard for, uh, for this are these latent fantasies to return to those times, you know, the, the perceived simplicity of them. Uh, and, you know, for some, it, it might it might be more uh, really a manifest desire to make society as it was in those quote golden days when, you know, people were more clearly defined by gender and race. But I think for most, I, I believe it's a desire to experience a less complicated self. Yeah. Uh, you know, to be sort of transported at least temporarily to those, you know, kind of halcyon summer days collecting baseball cards with terrible gum, you know, or walking into a stadium for the first time and, you know, holding your parents' hand and, and seeing how big an arena is and, and how green the grass is and, and how magical it is to be a part of a crowd that, you know, cheers uh, in unison and shares the love for, for your team. Uh, you know, I know kid who becomes a sports fan in that moment is thinking, geez, I wonder, you know, how, how, how underpaid are the stadium workers or what drugs are the players taking or why are there, you know, cigarette ads in the outfield and, right. and why are all the coaches white and why are all these women being sexualized on the jumbotron? You know, what, what's remembered is this joy and passion of, of, you know, an imagined community that, that becomes, you know, comes to life. Um, I, you know, I'm oh, sorry. I just, you've done such an excellent job of, I think, encapsulating that perspective, you know, that desire, because I think for myself, it's very limited in the sense of, you know, at this age today, intellectually, I understand all the things that are wrong with the NFL. And yet I also can't lie and say, I don't have a deep emotional love for it on a certain level, because it was something that I experienced with family members who meant a lot to me, you know, growing up. But that was, it wasn't a participation. It wasn't a, you know, all five senses sort of being lit up as you walk into a ballpark, you know, that live sort of sports experience, which I think you, you captured really well at sort of understanding how it is both sort of an escapism from the everyday, but it's also a, romantic, a romanticization of childhood as a perfect, as a perfect state, uh, a safe space, all that sort of stuff. And I think you also do a really good job, not saying you yourself personally believe this, but the way you've sort of uh, described it per uh, and analyzed it is it sort of reaffirms just how childish an adult's love for this is, because that is really what they want to go back to, right? When we hear sentiments like, it's just sports, keep the politics out of it. It's like, well, that's impossible. What you're really saying is I'd like to return back to that sort of perfect world, that perfect state of, of, of a quote unquote innocence, or at least a, a privilege to, to allow yourself to be, to be innocent. Bo Jackson was the first superhero of my generation. There's something mythical about everything that he did. There goes Bo, and nobody catches Bo. He may not stop yet to coma. Bo Jackson was one of the last, well, how can I describe this? He was one of the last athletes who the information about him was anecdotal. 
that you wouldn't necessarily see the things you heard about them, but there was kind of like this legendary kind of like Paul Bunyan description around him. And he's fun to think about. He's fun to remember. So that's, that's, yeah, I certainly couldn't have put that in, in as, as better words. And I'm going to save my listeners from another rant of mine about sort of nostalgia theory. Uh, we'll save that for another well, time. Yeah, I just, um, I just want to jump in because you're bringing up yeah. so many good things here. Uh, I'll see if I can remember all the good points you made. But first, of course, is we are so uncomfortable with, with wanting to admit that two things can simultaneously be, be correct or, or actual at the same time. So, you know, let's keep it in the sports arena. Can one person be the best of their generation at, at swatting a ball with a bat? Yes, that can be true. And at the same time, they can simultaneously also be uh, some sort of addict. They can be someone who abuses their wife. They could be someone who cheats on their taxes. They can be, you know, they could be a bad teammate, you know, blah, 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 blah. But that makes about us- Ty Cobb, Pete Rose. <laughs> I mean, take your pick, yeah. right? <laughs> you, you know, but but that is possible. But we don't like to think about that. Second part of that is because it's something we start out in youth. We tend to romanticize it as something of only that moment, or it's meant to be of children and ideal idealized childhood. And so we we don't want it to sort of involve politics, so to speak. And that leads me to the third point that you mentioned, which is is a wonderful way of sort of saying it, which is. We, we want it to be this perfect idealized form that is separate or, 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 or outside everyday society and culture, but really what it is, it's a microcosm for society and culture, just with a lot more exciting, you know, athletic feats, you know, that, that are going on there. So I want to kind of get into your work a little bit more specifically here, and I'm going to, I'm going to do that by transitioning this way. And normally, we often have uh, my other co-hosts, Steve Voorhees and, and Andrew Salvati, but, you know, just audiences know sometimes we're not all here. And there's one topic that Steve has always loved to talk about, and that is the topic of flow within television or television programming. And we've gone back and forth on and on. He's sort of old school, which is if I let him, he'll talk on and on about sort of old school 20th century network programming and guys like Brandon Tartikoff and really trying to decide sort of, okay, we're going to slot this show in here and then we're going to slot this other show right after it. And what is that sort of in and sort of Raymond Williams and all this sort of idea of sort of how the flow of, of getting the audience through the content. But obviously that all has been blown to hell these days. And the watchword is, of course, binge watching. But what's so cool is that you actually have studied binge watching rather than it just sort of being a buzzword. So maybe just for the audience who hasn't really ever taken the time to really think through this, what drew you to the topic first off? And then maybe sort of give us a, a definition or or maybe different types of binge watchers and, and sort of how to think through this idea. Uh, yeah, certainly. Um, you know, I, I would say maybe... Maybe it hasn't been blown to hell. It's been blown to heaven, or maybe both, or somewhere <laughs> in between. I'm, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll let somebody else judge that. But yeah, um, so I started studying binge watching as a, a graduate student uh, at Temple in 2013. I guess the reason I started studying it was because I've been doing it my whole life, um, as as many people had, and just didn't really have a word for it, and. Um, 
I don't know, not to get you know too too personal, but my parents were both uh, you know uh, literature professors, mm. and they viewed television as the idiot box, and those who consumed it to be couch potatoes, and they strongly encouraged me to uh, to read, and uh, I uh, you know as any any good. Uh, son would do. I rebelled against that by doing that, which they thought was stupid and right. American and, uh, you know, unintellectual. And I watched TV and uh, I suppose, you know, when you're doing a PhD, you, you got to do what you love. And, but part of it might've also been the defiance of showing my parents that I could become a professor <laughs> like them, uh, you know, studies uh, and researches, teaches a topic which they felt did not belong in the ivory tower. So uh, I, I get into this in greater depth in my uh, in my book, which should be coming out uh, in 2022, which cool. I'll, I'll drop a plug for later. But so about binge watching. Um, so yeah, I, for your for your listeners, I'm not sure. I mean, binge watching is one of those things where you know the latest numbers are like 95 percent of people in the United States have done it. Uh, at least uh, once or twice, but there's not. And I and I spent a lot of time talking to the uh, the academics who consider themselves to be experts in the field of binge watching. If it is a field, there is no set agreement. I mean, we have a range, but there's really there's a lot of a lot of debate over what actually constitutes binge watching. Um, you know, for the purpose of like doing experiments and stuff. You know, we've sort of coalesced around a basic time frame or episode frame that when a binge starts, though, even that is, uh, you know, I mean, you go to an academic conference and you bring this up and you're going to get, you know, people are going to start fighting. So, <laughs> uh, but, you know, basically it's, you know, watching, watching the same show continuously in a fashion that would have been impossible during your colleague, I, I, I'm blanking on uh, the name you just said, but during during the broadcast era when you would have to tune in next week to find out what happens next on whatever show. It's instead this sort of uh, gaining control and at the same time losing control through your remote control. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's taking back that ability to not have to tune in next week to find out what happens next, but rather saying, I want to find out what happens next now. And I will. And you know what? I'm going to find what happens next after that if I want to, or if not, I won't. But typically, and again, what an episode is, is sort of being obliterated by, by the internet. But for the sake of simplicity, it's typically defined as at least two hours straight. Um, and usually it's three hours of, uh, of the same show. Um, typically that breaks down in traditional terms as at least six episodes straight of a quote unquote, you know, American 23 minute long sitcom or a 42 to however long drama. Again, those genres and those episode lengths are all being obliterated. Um, and if somebody's going to listen to this in five years, they're going to be like, what? How long? But um, for simplicity, that that's typically how it's been defined. Uh, and another way that is sort of important and kind of relates to sports in some ways too, is it doesn't necessarily have to be that you are binging that length of time, but if you are sort of singularly focused on a story. So let's say you're you're trying to get through uh, the Sopranos. And so that's really the focus of your of your viewing. And maybe and that that's sort of what you're watching. And so over the course of a week you finish a season. 
let's say 13 episodes, you're not necessarily binge watching every day, but some people define it as I binge watched The Sopranos because in a week I did a season yeah. and then next week I did, you know, a season and a half or whatever. So it's sort of a singular focus that you're controlling uh, in order to consume a narrative. So I guess, uh, you know, lots of questions here, but is there, at least so far in your research, is there any connection to, I, I, I guess I should say it this way. I think people would naturally say that in a media ecosystem of customizable culture and content, meaning I watch what I want to watch whenever I want to watch it, that's sort of the natural foundation for binge watching, right? Well, I want to sit here for six hours straight and I want to watch this. But I wonder, you, you're talking about this idea of singular focus. Have you, in any of your research, have you come across sort of that it's almost a reaction to the social media environment, meaning... I always talk to my students about it's a it's an ecosystem of distraction, right? And my joke is I always hold up my phone and I say, remember, this thing is not built or designed for deep, slow contemplation, right? It's the opposite of that. So I wonder in your research, and it's okay if you haven't, obviously, who knows what you've gotten to yet, but have you looked at it as do people binge because they like that all I have to focus on right now is this one story or learn everything about Michael Jordan or whatever, and, and I'm not doing a million things at once. Has that come up at all in the research so far? Absolutely. So th there are a couple uh, of articles uh, that I have that sort of allude to this. The first one with my colleague, Kun Su, who's at, uh, we were grad students together, but he's at uh, uh, University of Florida. And in that we looked at the, the uses and gratifications, the sort of motivations, why and how people binge watch. And we came up with this idea of a viewer attentiveness spectrum. Mm. So um, there's certain kind of content which uh, you know requires less attentiveness in order to enjoy other kinds of content that in order to enjoy, you have to really pay close attention to. Uh, and we found that those aligned with the different motives that people had for binge watching. So if you're binge watching to relax after uh, you know a hard day of work, uh, you tend to uh, be better or more likely to get that motivation to get that uh, gratification of relaxation by focusing on shows that require less attentiveness. And these can be shows such as, uh, you know, sitcoms, reality shows where there's a lot of repetition. Characters are often not as complex. The locations are fewer and the, the you know, they're not subtitles off that, you know, it's, right. it's, a, it's, you can, you can be doing, you can be multitasking while you do it. You don't have to be hyper absorbed in it. Uh, towards the other end of the spectrum, you have shows that, you know, uh, where there's lots going on, really complicated, complex dramas with that. When you, if you look away from the screen for too long, you're going to have to pause and rewind just to get what's happening. Uh, you know, the shows like A Lost or, you know, Game of Thrones, where it's just so such a, a sprawling, uh, you know, universe of, of things happening. And so we, we found that this, this sort of uh, relationship exists. And then in, in a paper that I, I had just come out now in, in 2021 with my colleague, Matthew Pittman at uh, University of Tennessee, we, we actually found two different types of binge watching, cringe watching and feast watching. And the, the, the cringe watching we found, which is what happens when you're um, sort of solo, you know, accidental and distracted binge watching. This sort of happens when your motives for binge watching don't really align with the content uh, that you got on the screen. Uh, and they often lead to, to feelings of, of uh, regret afterward. So, you know, for some, you know, in this 
big distracting world of information all around us and people constantly trying to reach us and being able to reach us constantly. Right, right. It can be for many people, you know, I don't want to go so far to say therapeutic, though Lisa Perks does does make that argument. But, you know, it, it can be very satisfying to take, you know, three hours of your time and just be focused on a singular story uh, and just attentive to that and really just be involved in that world. Yeah. Um, and so in, in that way, you know, binge watching, you know, spending spending a, a, an afternoon or a, or a weekend even uh, being absorbed in the in, in the complex, complicated world of 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 the wire can be very, very satisfying and uh, and thought provoking and believe it or not, you know, relaxing compared to everything and the distractions that are going on around us. So I, I think in that sense, yes, I, binge watching really can can give that to people. Uh, the problem is when you try to do it with with the wrong motives in mind, right? If you're trying to trying to, you know, binge watch uh, you know, the wire, let's say, but you have to cook dinner at the same time and you got, you know, your phone's going off, that just is will create feelings of uh, displeasure because you're not, you know, you're not being absorbed in the show. It's like if the show were a vacation for you and you're going on vacation, it would be like constantly getting emails from, you know, coworkers and your, you know, people, you, your students or something while you're like lying on a beach. You're like, no, I don't, want, <laughs> I don't want to leave the beach. I'm here on the beach. You know, I don't have my, you know, work hat on or my work suit on i have a bathing suit on so, so, so um I, I just want to jump in because i love these terms of the, the cringe watch and the feast watch i just want to make sure I'm, i i i don't miss something here does within the umbrella of the term cringe watch does like old school ideas of like hate watch or hate listening fall into there and what i'm thinking of is somewhat famously uh when Howard Stern was king of all radio, you know, of terrestrial radio, you know, part of the reason why his numbers were so high was because, you know, the joke was half the people listen to him because they love what he's saying. And the other half listen to him because they just want, they can't believe what he's going to say next that they can't stand the guy. So I'm just wondering if it, and obviously if it's not in there, it's not in there, but, but does, and I guess the most recent example would, would be something like a, um, the uh, the Tiger King docu you know documentary something like that like are are any of your data show that people sort of watch things to sort of mock it or to belittle it is that part of cringe or would that be something else? Well, John, I think you're talking about um, in my understanding kind of a few different things. I think people listen to Howard Stern because again it was like live and you did not know what would happen next and you may have hated what comes next right and you wanted to hate what comes next. Or you loved what came next, but it was unexpected, and that that unexpected. Whereas with binge watching, the term hate watching is typically more associated with, well, I had this show that I started. I'm in this relationship with this show, <laughs> I and yeah. I I just I'm just you know I I don't like it anymore. But I've invested so much time into it that I gotta finish it now because I just, <laughs> I just gotta finish it. I hate it. I'm in a, I'm uh, in a know, bad I, marriage. <laughs> it's, a, it's a bad marriage, right? But at that point, you're just you're you're, you're yeah. sunk cost. You're in it, you know, and you're gonna make it to the end. So in my in my uh, you know when I talk to people and I interview people about uh, that that's typically why they use hate watching. 
Uh, when it comes to something like Tiger King, which, uh, you know, as, as, as your listeners probably know, as everybody seems to probably know, you know, came out during the pandemic and everybody tuned into it. I think that that is sort of more of um, a sort of schadenfreude kind of uh, watching, uh, you know, the the watching that a lot of, not everybody, but a lot of people uh, bring up when you talk about reality shows, even though technically it was a documentary, you know, the idea of, wow, you know, I got a lot going on in my life's hard, but geez, I'm not that messed up. Or, oh my Lord, people like that exist. And, you know, and then you have a bit of the Howard Stern stuff, maybe like guests on Howard Stern, you know, yeah, <laughs> like, oh sure. geez, that person did what? Right, or, you right. know, so with Tiger King, I, th- I think it was, it was that, I mean, again, we were all locked inside. Life was bleak. It was terrible for a lot of people from uh, pretty much everybody. Life was pretty bad. Um, and so, Having that sort of shared like freak show, for lack of a better word for it, but in some ways it was that. It was like, look at that guy and look at that world. And, you know, t- stuff's bad, but it's not that, you know? And, oh my gosh, you know, like what, what is going to happen? You know, and then, then you get yeah. to the what's going to happen next, I think, element too, which Netflix is awesome at cultivating. Yeah. Uh, so let's go back a little bit to, or, or come back around to sort of where we started with this idea of nostalgia and the idea of content on demand and the idea of the internet as building a better mousetrap, meaning it learns from your previous desires, it pre, your previous searches, it wants to bring you back better, more uh, you know, highly efficient results, which of course leads to sort of more of the same and, and all that sort of thing. So I tend to sort of wonder, and I'm, I'm wondering if in any of your work across your various articles, and, and, and as you mentioned earlier, eventually the, the, the first book and all that, in any of the uses and gratifications theory, has anything sort of come up that's led you to believe that in a very rudimentary way, is there potential here for sort of a approximation of time travel in the sense of I want to live again in 1996 with Michael Jordan, meaning I want to re-experience what I, like you mentioned at the top of this interview, the joy I felt as a 12-year-old or the joy I felt as a 10-year-old watching Jordan, you know, shoot great uh, shots or slam dunk or whatever, pass the ball to Scotty because it's binge watching because and and again, I'm 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 putting a gross generalization here on binge watchers. You're the one who did the work. I didn't. But imagine someone who decides to shut themselves in for a weekend and on both Saturday and Sunday, they spend eight hours, nine hours in these worlds. Am I overstating that potential there that if I wanted to sort of live in a time, at least reviewing it, the potential is there or is there more to it than that? Am I oversimplifying it? Well, I mean... So there, there are a few things. First of all, my research has found that for feelings of transportation, nostalgia in the sense of transportation, but time traveling, um, the the you know it, it caps after a point. But yes, watching more episodes in a row of let's say the Michael Jordan documentary gets you more immersed in that world than one episode and then disconnecting from it until I guess ESPN technically aired two at a time, but watching two and then disconnecting and then coming back. 
again, that allows for, you know, different conversations to happen, the quote unquote water cooler conversations that no longer exist, but, you know, the, the cyber equivalent thereof. So, so yes, in a sense, my research has found that it creates deeper feelings of that transportation by watching more in a row and also by not having commercials. And this is why I, I, people I spoke to during, you know, last summer, uh, when I was talking to people about what they've been, what they, what sports fans binge watch, uh, during the pandemic, a lot of people who did the Michael Jordan documentary DVR'd it or, uh, waited to get access to all of the episodes so that they could watch it straight through or watch it for longer periods of time uh, and thereby cut out those interruptions to their immersive experience. Hmm. So short answer, no, you're not oversimplifying. It, it, it does. And according to my research and people I talk to, like it does create a deeper sense of that. Right. So now in terms of, of the, the content itself, I mean, I am, I'm hard pressed to think of anybody who was, you know, uh, you know, under 12 or something when, when, you know, Michael Jordan was playing, you know, who, who, you know, particularly younger, you know, the earlier Michael Jordan who, you know, watched that documentary and heard the, and saw the, you know, I want to be like Mike commercial, you know, and didn't feel themselves just torn back to the time when they wanted to be like Mike, you know, that is a powerful, powerful feeling that show evoked for, for, for sports fans. And, you know, that it, it was moving, like literally, you know, or not literally, but <laughs> figuratively moving, up, but in many different ways. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is a powerful thing. And, and sports documentaries are really great at doing that. Um, the, the, the danger, I think, though, and the, the, or not the danger, but the thing we need to be aware of when we consume uh, sports documentaries, particularly, you know, if we're, if we're binge watching them because the feeling is, is more powerful, is that we, we can still think critically about it. Because oftentimes when we are, when we are moved like that, our, you know, th- we go back to that sort of simplistic, you know, uncritical eye of, you know, our, our youth that is so powerful. And it allows us to sort of overlook those things that we're really wrong with sports, are really wrong with sports, that we need to be aware of to having what I call a mature relationship with sports. One that is both passionate for those feelings, aware of them, loves them, but is aware also of the realities, the politics, the economics, the identity issues that sports has not been great at and is still not great at dealing with. You know, and if you look at some of the the documentaries that came out this past year, you know, I I, I feel like you know the 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 summer um, I'm going to play no, long gone summer mm-hmm. uh, that looked at Maguire Sosa the '98 home run chase, right? The music in there, the choices of what they showed uh, was incredibly nostalgic. It pulled us back to that that summer, and yet the there was not like there was not really a, a clearly defined villain and as such they're sort of like they alighted over all the systemic failures of major league baseball of sports journalists to really look at what was going on there and the fact that you know baseball was largely you know trying to find a way to clamber out of the strike in 94 and you know like nobody wanted to talk about steroids when mcguire and sosa are hitting dingers Right. And that, and like, and unfortunately, I feel like that that documentary did not, similarly did not do a great job of taking us there uh, critically. 
you know, of course it talked about it, but it didn't, it didn't challenge it. Instead, it kind of like glossed over it the same way we kind of glossed over it at that time. And it was much more interested in how great it felt. And it, it was a fun summer. I remember when they would cut from other games and other sports when McGuire came to the plate, you know, to just see if he happens at a home run right now. I mean, it was, everybody was watching. We shared that together. And yes, that was powerful, but my Lord, I mean, like there were so many uncritical things that then that similarly, we didn't do right when it came to concussions in the NFL. And I say us now as sports journalists, you know, how for a long time, we just weren't pushing back enough on, on, uh, on the NFL and on powerful uh, entities surrounding it. And, you know, even when people like Bob Costas, you know, Bob Costas, for God's sake, getting fired, like still, you know, the NFL, this powerful, largest you know, most powerful sports organization, certainly in America, probably in some ways the world, uh, you know, just again, like just the not being critical about it. So that is the, the, the danger, if, if not danger, the thing we need to be aware of when we have those feelings and we can, we are capable of having a mature relationship that can hold multiple positions simultaneously. And I think by doing that, we can, as sports fans, as sports watchers, sports professionals, enjoy it in a real way, in a better way yeah. uh, than just being brought back to our youth alone and, and making the same mistakes again. Yeah, no, I, I love your phrase about sort of the mature way of doing this because I, I say the th same thing to my students, which is just because you think through a subject doesn't mean that your pleasure of it somehow then decreases. It actually increases, right? You may not like every particular element you find in that subject, but you're getting more and more sort of embedded with it, sort of like your your example of the of the bad marriage version of the reality binge, right? Like, I didn't want to know all this, but I'm in it. I'm in it for the long haul. And the same with with NFL or whatever whatever sport uh, you choose. And I think I've seen this also in the literature when it when a sim, similar idea in the literature regarding sports historians versus public displays of sports history, meaning the sports historian properly trained. She wants to know all the war, you know, all the, the, the details, warts and all. Whereas if you're at, say, like a stadium a museum or something, uh, some sort of display, it tends to be just sort of this uh, awe inspiring, you know, hero worship. Um, we gloss over those details. And then the third element I just want to kind of uh, uh, sort of summarize here, because I think you said a lot of really important things there is the idea that if we didn't call out the, the critical assessment at the time of the Sosa McGuire element, and now in the same sort of networks or corporate networks, uh, represent, representing that history, now that uncriticalness is sort of compacting down upon itself. And in some ways will become a little denser and a little harder to chip away at in a, in a, in a critical way, not impossible, of course, but, but certainly it reaffirms sort of a one particular one particular uh, uh, narrative. So yeah, so I, I, oh, I would just Please. if I could just add, yeah, I mean it's like you know the criticism of television uh, during the 20th century, and rightfully so, was that uh, the broadcast model was basically trying to capture the widest, broadest audience to therefore get the most ad dollars, and and the result of that was to really flatten the content, homogenize it to turn it into this really superficial in some ways depiction of uh, American, oh, and it was in other countries too, of, of 
of, of life. And what became so interesting when we start moving towards the, the cable era is that we start getting shows that have characters who are three-dimensional, warts and all, as, as you said it. And while, yes, those characters can turn off a lot of people, they are much more powerful because they are three-dimensional. They are interesting. They are not just something that is going to carry you through to the next commercial break. Uh, and I, I believe that that same understanding can come along with sports. When we just look at sports in that sort of monumental uh, way, as you, as you described it, where they're just these, these images, these, these, you know, statues, these, you know, sort of gods without, you know, flaw, then we're not really, you know, getting sports in, in that powerful way. Instead, we're just getting a, an easily digestible uh, narrative. And, you know, it's hard. It's hard to like have to think through a show that's complicated that you might not like the main character a lot of times. But that is an adult thing that is a mature kind of relationship to have with culture, yeah. you know, that you can understand it more deeply, uh, you know, to bring it back to sort of, you know, a, a sort of, you know, a marriage or something like that. If your marriage is purely based on superficiality, then, you know, it's not, you know, it's not going to last like things, <laughs> you know, you're not going to, you know, because nobody exists that way. You know, we're all human, we're three dimensional. And, and so I, again, I, you know, to understand it, to experience sports and, and television in, in this way, I think makes for better sports and better television. Yeah. Um, and it also allows us to be critical about the world around us, which, you know, is, is something that I, I certainly you know, want my students to, to, to take with them, to be critical thinkers. Yeah. And I think, I think we'll save some of this perhaps for, for another go around uh, and maybe another episode, but, but other, other topics that you've reminded me of are, you know, because it's so often a relationship between a father and a son and sort of issues of masculinity um, that definitely sort of, you know, uh, pers uh, pervades uh, sort of U S sports culture. The second is one area that I like to think through, which is, uh, within collective memory literature, um, this of course is with much more serious topics than just you know sports. But the idea that if you have a family that re uh, repeats a certain memory or mnemonic narrative enough, and it's traumatic enough, uh, the children can actually take it upon themselves as as if it's their own memory. And I think in a watered down version, we see little bits of that within sports fandom, uh, which I think is 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 also sort of sort of interesting. And, um, and then of course, what you were sort of talking about, which is, you know, who, who is sort of writing these narratives, who's sort of presenting it and to whose benefit. And that really gets us into, and I'm really dumbing this down here. Uh, sorry, listeners, but you know, is, is sport understood as, as a piece of culture in an artistic sense, or is it just a piece of commerce? You know, like you said, to get us to the next commercial for, for whatever else. So who knows? But maybe, maybe uh, down the road we can convince you to come back, and we'll maybe get into some of those sort of topics and issues as we uh, as we move forward. But just looking at being aware of the time, so that uh, I don't waste your time, uh, kind of sum us up here is what's like an idea or a concept that either we've talked about already, and you want to reiterate, or maybe we haven't talked about already that might be sort of interesting, sort of a nice little button to sort of a little morsel to sort of throw out there and say, hey check this out or think about this. You know, this is a, this is a cool idea you should know about. Yeah. Well, I, I you know, first of all, Jonathan, um, I'd be happy to come back and uh, chat some more. This has been a lot of fun. 
you you said a lot uh, in terms of uh, sort of familiar um, narratives that get passed down, particularly trauma um, through the generations and something uh, I'd be happy to talk with you about it at another time. But uh, sports is a, is a microcosm of that. Um, you know, I, I grew up uh, mostly in, in Philadelphia and we have a lot of that. And again, I don't want to, I don't, want this to sound like I'm belittling uh, other kinds of trauma by talking about the trauma of Philadelphia sports fans. I'm not, (laughs) Um, but there, there is certainly a part of the identity of, of, of people uh, in, in Philadelphia that is, uh, you know, pegged to or framed around um, the trauma that the, the sports teams of this city have caused them and their parents. And in some cases, grandparents, that becomes woven into the identity of the citizens of the city of brotherly love to the point where it's almost a pride in the trauma that uh, we have been through. Uh, and this is not to say that it's it's not the case in, in, in other cities. I, I imagine, I don't know, but I imagine folks in Cleveland have a lot <laughs> that they could gripe about. Um, and you know, Buffalo, uh, Detroit, sure. there are a number of cities where people, uh, where, where, you know, if this, uh, kind of shared trauma of sports is passed down generation to generation that people would have a, a, a lot to say, but I'm from Philly and, uh, you know, it is, it is sort of something that, that, that sort of trauma that you wear on, uh, is a badge of pride on, you know, on your sleeve that, you know, that if you see somebody in a sports bar in Bangkok, you know, but you, you're both from Philly, uh, and suddenly you automatically have a language of trauma and sports that you can connect on. And that is a powerful thing. So, you know, in that sense, I, I guess, uh, to, to get to, uh, to, to what you're you're asking about a point to take with you, I I think that uh, you know perhaps that's it that with this era of binge watching wherein we have such uh, a diversity of content that uh, really can be personalized um, to large extent to our desires. And again, I we could have a whole podcast on how algorithmically that is taking place, and I, I I'm not going to get into that now because sure. it's a really long conversation, but that. That sort of more personalized kind of, um, of of content, however diffused it might be, so that there are now smaller groups of people watching the same thing, can create real human connection between people. The way that being a, a, a Philly sports fan uh, or you know a tennis fan uh, or, or whatever can create among perfect strangers, uh, in that I can I can you know. If, if I was still really, you know, if bars were all open and we were all maskless, we, we're moving that direction. Um, again, this will sound dated, hopefully in a year, um, but sure. that you can sit down at a bar and, and you know, start talking about, uh, you know, sports and have that shared language and that shared vernacular and that shared experience the same way you can have it with a show. And, and now the, those shows are much more personal. So, you know, like, um, you know, maybe only a million people are, are watching or fewer are, are watching this show, but the people who are watching really find something in it that they are connected to. And so that's powerful. That, that human connection that, that you can create through, uh, through these form of, of mediated culture. Yeah. That's the takeaway I would say uh, about binge watching that, you know, among hopefully many more, but that, that's, that's a, that's an important one. Um, how it can really bring us together, even though we're often watching alone. And, and I would just add, and again, this will be for a, maybe a, a return visit 
But when you're talking about sort of this wearing your your fandom trauma as a badge of, of uh, honor or pride, it's also not surprisingly that the towns, cities rather, you you articulated, and actually I had the exact same list in my brain while you said them, they're also all the towns of the 20th century that were somewhat industrial bases who then spent the second half of the 20th century steadily declining. And so I don't think it's going out on too far of a limb to make a connection between a, a pride in sports fandom to sort of make up that vacuum, to make up that identity the lo- that's lost in the industrial way. And then uh, when that doesn't really come through, i.e. you lose all the time due to mismanagement mm-hmm. and whatnot, uh, you know, you start to wear that as a, as a badge as well. Yeah. So yeah, the whole, uh, how often will you hear about one of those cities? Uh, it's a blue collar fans. Right. They are blue collar, hardworking fans. That it doesn't matter that uh, the cost of tickets to go to games in some of these towns are more than somebody wearing a blue collar could afford for he or she and uh, their family. But still, that that's what that's the narrative that we will, uh, or the better yet, that's the uniform we'll put them in, exactly. right? As a, as a collective fan base, right? Yeah, exactly. So to to sort of reach the end here. And you alluded to this a little bit earlier, but uh, and you already mentioned a few things, actually. But anything you'd like to plug or promote here at the end that we should know about? Either work or things you're involved with, et cetera? Uh, well, I mean, sure. If I got an opportunity for that. Um, yeah, you know, I, I teach um, in our sports communication and media program at Rowan University. And, you know, I always like to, to give a shout out to that because my students there are all really passionate uh, about sports and they really, you know, love studying it. Um, and so I, I, my program, we're really blessed in that way. I've taught a lot of uh, different uh, classes uh, to undergraduates. Um, and it's really a pleasure to, to, to teach classes where students want to do the reading. They want to join the classroom conversation. Yeah. Um, and the fact that we can reach students uh, with a topic that they find not only accessible, but, attractive and interesting. And again, I think this kind of goes back to, to, to my parents and my, my upbringing too, but the fact that we can find literacies and opportunities for students to think critically if we can, as academics, not be afraid to reach them uh, with topics that might be considered to outside the typical ivory tower world that uh, for whatever reason are, are sort of, you know, looked down upon the same way television uh, was looked down upon and perhaps what drove me to want to study television uh, as much as I did. So um, I, I think that in, in that sense, it's, it's a wonderful, uh, a wonderful opportunity for us as, as scholars to, and, and it doesn't, you don't just have to be an academic. I think for, for parents or anyone to, to if you want to, if you want to reach people, you know, younger people, particularly you, there are topics that are, that you can make educational, even though on the surface, they seem uneducational <laughs> or, you know, not, not proper for education. Right. Um, and I think that that's something important, uh, in terms of a plug, I, I you know, I have a, you know, new article out on in binge watching that I alluded to in the journal Convergence. It's called Distinguishing Feast Watching from Cringe Watching. Planned social and attentive binge watching predicts increased well-being and decreased regret. Boy, we got to come up with a more uh, <laughs> sellable title than that. But uh, my colleague Matthew Pittman and I uh, just had that come out in March of this year, and we're pretty proud of that. Sure. And I, I also have a book called Binge Watching uh, Killed the Idiot Box, which knock on wood will be uh, in print uh, in 2022. Cool. 
Um, so I'm hoping that your uh, listeners have a long attention span and remember this in about a year when the, when the book comes out. Uh, but uh, other than that, you know, it's it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Jonathan. I, I love being able to to, to talk with um, with people who are interested in, in in this work and 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 what and what you do. And I, I think that it's great to have like smart, interesting podcasts out there that um, hopefully reach people who can then dig into something more deeply than they uh, than they knew about before. And, uh, that's a great thing. So, uh, congrats on this this venture. And uh, as I said before, I'm happy to happy to chat more whenever you'd like. Yeah, it, it's been it's been great having you on because we haven't talked specifically about binge watching uh, before. Uh, again, we tend to uh, talk about things in the 20th century, which would be a totally different formation. Um, but what I really appreciate, and and this is of course a citation that has escaped my brain at, at the moment I need it, but. You know, one of my favorite quotes, and I think you really embodied this in all the best ways, and that is, you know, for academics, our research, no matter how we want to dress it up, and we should dress it up in some ways if it means it's 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 increasing our level or, or quality of thought, but our biography is really our research. And you've been as authentic as you possibly could be today, and I really genuinely appreciate that because it tells us everything about why you care so much about this topic. And that's more most important because then it tells us why we should be so uh, passionate and interested in this topic. Um, so that's been, that's been awesome to sort of hear where you got started in this, why you pursue it, what you're trying to uh, impart upon your students, et cetera. So uh, I appreciate the talk. It's been, it's been great. I've learned a lot. And I think our listeners, uh, I think our listeners have as well. So thank you for that and linebacker for the Eagles, but Narek was the NFL's last 60-minute player. Here is his story, wrapped as it is in his favorite colors. Red for the blood spilled by his comrades in World War II, white for the purity of the cause, and blue for the color of his collar. Blue through and through. In the first half of the 20th century, Millions of sons were born to Eastern European immigrants amid the squalor of the nation's mining and mill towns. Children of outrageous social injustice, they grew up tough and angry. Their bodies forged by hard labor and tuned to a fine edge by street fights and football. They proved their worth in World War II. Thanks again to Dr. Emil Steiner. If you're interested in looking more into his work, please check out the links and images I've embedded within the episode's page on www.tvhistorypod.com. Again, www.tvhistorypod.com. And if you've stayed with us all the way to the end, we do appreciate that. Remember, Patreon subscribers will get a new bonus episode next week. While I'll see you regular feed listeners again in two weeks. I'm Jonathan Bollinger. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Bye for now. The following program is brought to you in living color. As early as 1923, David Starnoff.